for the continuation and maintenance of a democracy. One should be tolerant of all views different to yours. It is much better to use words to settle differences than with weapons. You see, weapons destroy human beings. When all these differing views are put together, a consensus should be found to move the nation forward together for one common cause. At the end of an argument, we may disagree, but not become disagreeable. Hello, good morning, and welcome to the first What's Your Point for 2022, and uh, thanks to Joseph Chelly for having sat in for me on the second day of January. Thanks again, Joseph. Yes, so this is What's Your Point with Garnet Ankle, and my quote for today says, There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but must take it because conscience tells him it is right. There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but he must take it because conscience tells him it is right. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the eve of the day we celebrate his life uh, with a national public holiday, which is very much deserving. And uh, today on the show, I'm going to play a conversation I had with uh, Professor Uhuru Williams. And uh, we spoke about the attempted coup d'etat at the United States Capitol building 
and uh, followed by the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This, the eve of the day we celebrate his life and work. We'll have a few minutes after just a chat. Uh, so you listen. My guest on the show today is the distinguished university chair, founding director of the new Racial Justice Initiative and professor of history at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Dr. Yuhuru Williams. Hello, Professor Williams. How are you today? I'm good, Gordon. How are you, Tom? I'm, I'm fine. Thank you so much. Glad you're able to be on the show today. Appreciate it. When I first thought of calling you, was to speak on the legacy of Dr. King, but I had to switch gears and say, okay, let's speak of Dr. King later on during the show. But first, speak on the January 6th attempted coup at the Capitol building here in the United States, in Washington, D.C. What are your thoughts on the entire thing? You know, I love the fact that you called it an attempted coup because there's been a deliberate situation where 122 members of the United States House of Representatives and uh, 13 members of the United States Senate are at one point talking about the election was fraudulent. So what do you make of these people? Do you think these people should be able to stay in those respective seats, seeing that they are party to this big lie that the election was stolen? I, you know what I think, Garnett, and you and I have talked about this in the past, I think what this represents is what I like to call a there goes my everything moment with regard to a certain population, a certain segment of the um, American population. For the last four years, we've heard people describe the Trump presidency as being one that's been aligned with white supremacy and anti-immigration and um, certainly uh, opposed to Black Lives Matter and any um, articulation of concerns on the part of the African-American community. They've also been attacked uh, science deniers, and we saw that in the dismal, impotent response to COVID-19, and individuals who have a kind of a reckless disregard for uh, democratic practice and calling into question, um, you know, anything where they're not the winner. So you, you put all of that in the context of what happened on January 6th and suddenly what this becomes is an expression of a large number of people acting out of their own self-interest to try to stall the transfer of power here in the country because they had something significant to lose. Whether that something significant was a loss of status uh, by virtue of uh, the conversations around racial justice, whether it was a loss of, of a feeling of a loss of freedom or autonomy, or autonomy because the government is asking people to do things like uh, wear masks in order to protect against COVID-19, whether it was concern over the extension of, and, and we saw the president in September um, actually mandate an end to all racial sensitivity training, so whether it was an effort to forestall, you know, effort to create understanding on issues of racial justice, but at the end of the day, those people who showed up at the Capitol and, and maybe hundreds of thousands or more didn't, but we supported them in spirit, believe that the nation has been stolen from them. It's not just the election. Um, and there's a great book by Jason Sokol entitled, There Goes My Everything, White Southerners in the Age of Civil Rights, 1945 to 1975. And Sokol's thesis is very simple. White Americans, Southern whites, went to bed in 1945 and the world looked one way. Um, there's no African-Americans playing baseball. There's no 
of federal equal protection laws on the books. Um, there's no desegregation of the bill. And then literally, they wake up the next day and there goes my everything. Everything they knew about their place in society has been disrupted by virtue of the fact that there's been movement on civil rights. I feel that what we saw in November and then what we played on January 6th was a there goes my everything moment where these individuals who've been so accustomed to being in power, who've been so used to uh, being at the top of the food chain, um, would do anything to maintain that power, to maintain that influence, to maintain that privilege, including um, in a violent uh, effort at the overthrow of the U.S. government, which again, people will say that that's not what they saw, but when you see people going in with nooses and zip ties and um, engaging in violent rhetoric and, and bearing the symbols of the Confederacy, it's hard to come to any other conclusion about what their intent was. And, you know, you can justify it by saying they felt this loss, but the reality is that their actions um, warrant the uh, equating that with an insurrection, equating that with an attempt to overthrow the government. So what do you think should be done to those members they, they, they kept they keep talking about uh a few members in the senate but i think it was 13 senators because if these people are supposed to be law makers and they happen to be law breakers uh, uh are they in the correct place in the senate and the house to be making laws when they're law breakers no, they shouldn't. I mean, this is, you know, um, this is part of the problem. Uh, these individuals, like Hawley and Cruz, should be held accountable for their actions in encouraging the violence and chaos that we saw on January 6th. The idea that somehow these individuals would be able to continue to hold their seat is repugnant. At the same time, that's why there's this push to impeach, even though he's out of office, Donald Trump, to prevent him. You know, the Republicans are saying, oh, it's moody, it's moody, he's not in office anymore. But he could run again. Anyone who's waged war against the United States government, the foundation of democracy, what Nancy Pelosi called the temple of democracy, should never be allowed uh, not only to serve uh, in, in the House or the Senate or any elective office, but actually should be looking at um, uh, even stronger uh, uh, rebuke, uh, including prison time. And so for me, as I look at some of the people who are parading around Washington today who are complicit in what we saw on January 6th, uh, barring if a service uh, or elective office would not be enough, I think that that warrants um, jail time. So wouldn't you say what took place with this anti-black racist terrorist mob, I call them, would you say that it, they're tantamount to invaders from a foreign nation? So in a situation like this, it doesn't matter who you voted for, everybody of goodwill should be standing up and say, this is wrong. People in the Senate and the House, the former president, must be held accountable. I, I think if you are a proponent of dealing with systemic racism in America, and you want to make the case that ultimately the nation, if you want people to feel like the, the nation is taking that seriously, then you have to take a stronger stand against these individuals because it is, without question, um, in the minds of many, and I think you can make the argument, again, based on the symbols that we saw. Look, Garnett, you and I both know this. When you march on the Capitol and you're carrying the Confederate flag, what does that represent? That represents 1861. That represents 11 states of the Confederacy that fled the Union. And when they did that, um, they, you know, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, gave a speech in March of 1861 where he said, the cornerstone of the Confederacy, its foundations rest on the belief that the Negro never was or never was intended to be equal with the white man. Now, when you're bearing that symbol, and then you say later on, oh, this isn't about white supremacy, and this isn't about uh, you know anti-black racism, I'm sorry, your symbol says otherwise, because that's what Alexander Stevens and Jefferson Davis and the other leaders of the Confederacy were defining that government on, those foundations. Secondly, when you have the symbol of the noose, the symbol of racial terror, there is 
even though um, we associate nooses with lynching, and even though hanging was less common than other forms of torture inflicted on black bodies um, in the period when this nation experienced double-digit lynchings between 1880 and 1930, where in some cases, in some states, you have hundreds of lynchings a year. Um, let's be clear that, uh, sorry, the states of the, of the old Confederacy where you had hundreds a year. Let's be clear that if you're, if you're putting a new stuff what you are is sharing a symbol of anti-black racist terror. Both of them tied to, both in the case of the Ku and the news, the birth of the, I'm sorry, the, the um, Confederate flag of the news, both invoke the, the memory and the history and the legacy of the Ku Klux Klan founded in Tennessee in 1856. So yes, January 6th was absolutely an expression of anti-black racism. It falls in line with what we saw in Charlottesville. It falls in line with the backlash against the removal of Confederate uh, flags and the backlash against Black Lives Matter and the backlash against kneeling. Because ultimately at the core, um, the people who are making the arguments against this are actually all about maintaining white supremacy. So uh, do you think the, the, the silencing of the former president taking away his Twitter, do you think that's maybe a little bit too late? I actually do think it's too late. I, you know, and a little too little too late, and it, it doesn't probably doesn't, in my mind, send a strong enough message to dissuade this type of activity in the future. You know, as we speak, the FBI um, issued uh, this morning uh, or yesterday morning a warning about how the Capitol attack is actually emboldened um, extremist groups in the United States, and they're warning against potential other um, efforts in attempts at this type of terror. We can't view January 6th in a bubble. Remember, a couple of months ago, the governor of Michigan was threatened. There was a plot to kidnap the governor by these white supremacist extremist groups. So um, the punishment to me doesn't fit the crime at this point. And if, if you're actually talking about driving out the behavior, then the only way to do that is to, to aggressively go after the perpetrators. In the aftermath of the Civil War, there was a representative named Richard Dana. And Richard Dana gave a speech in which he you know, basically laid out the case for why you, you couldn't do what Lincoln was proposing, which was to have charity toward all and malice toward none. What Richard Dana said is there's such thing as the grasp of war. And he put it in the very stark terms that any school child could understand who's ever been in a scrum on a playground or gotten into a fight. What Dana said is when you have gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with an enemy or an opponent and you have vanquish that foe and you put them down before you extend your hand to them in friendship you should make sure that they understand before you let them up that they are the loser and that um, you know you incapacitate them and communicate to them in whatever way necessary that they can never do this again or they'll face the same or worse consequences I, I love talking about Richard Dana in this context because we all know what happened in the aftermath of the Civil War Reconstruction. Lincoln's way with uh, malice toward um, none and charity toward all didn't quite win. But by 1877, Reconstruction has ended on the altar of presidential politics and creating unity. It's the same thing in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 1960s. You've got the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and then shortly thereafter, uh, people assume that everything's done and the Democrats and Republicans come back together and then you get years and years of uh, neglect, um, benign neglect and issues of civil rights. In our contemporary moment, I think what you heard African-American leaders saying in the aftermath of the election before January 6th, you know, when Biden won and he came out in his uh, acceptance speech and said, we're going to work toward unity, there were a whole bunch of black folks said, oh no, not again. Because our concern in that moment was, we know how this story ends when we work diligently to help um, deliver an election, and you come out talking about making peace with those people who would have, back to Richard Dana, destroyed us if given the opportunity. In fact, we spent four years of watching them do that in communities of color. And it's not until January 6th and what we saw on January 6th that it seems that the, the rest of the country progressives and liberals caught up in understanding what black leaders were saying in the aftermath of Biden's election, which was, this ain't over. 
But it isn't over until you deal with Trumpism, which at its core is just the rebirth of white supremacy and the strain in American history, which is sought to isolate and dominate people of color um, and to relegate them second-class citizenship solely based on their race. I am speaking with the distinguished university chair, professor of history, and the founding director of the new Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Dr. Uhuru Williams. The show is What's Your Point? I am Garnet Ankle. So it's, it's a shame, though, to see 25,000 troops at the capital as if it's a garrison. And then the United States goes around the world and tell people how to run country and how to deal with democracy. How do we regain as a country that, that, that statute to tell people, okay, you need to be democratic when this country is not? Well, I mean, that's the problem. When we think about the, um, the, the home that Amanda Gorman delivered, right? Yes. She is the descendant of slaves and the child of a single mother. The reality is that um, race is the third rail in American politics. The race is tied to poverty and race is inextricably um, connected to so much of what is wrong with our Republican form of government. So in order to truly restore democracy, you have to deal, well, and some would argue, before you even claim that you have a democracy, you have to deal with the issue of racial injustice and all of its manifestations. Uh, it's not just dealing with what's happening at the polls, with felony disfranchisement and the changing of polling places and the 2013 gutting of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, it's not just that. You know, those are important things. But it's deeper than that because a people cannot participate in the full civic and economic life of the republic unless they are fully functioning members are recognized as such by their government. So, you know, for me, the conversation about unity and restoring democracy are both premature until you basically engage in what I think needs to be a third reconstruction. So the first reconstruction we had after the Civil War, and it failed. The second reconstruction came during the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 1960s, and it was challenged. This reconstruction, you've got to have political leaders with the political will and fortitude to stick this out and to ensure that at the end of the day, they understand this isn't just dealing with America's Negro problem, black problem, race problem. This is about dealing with an issue fundamental to American democracy itself. So are you saying that the talk from President Biden about unity and to unite the nation, you should just run through his agenda and, uh, and then you can deal with talking about unity afterwards? Yeah. You know, I, I believe that what he needs to do is learn from, you know, your model in this case can't be Barack Obama in 2008 and I'm going to reach across the aisle. Um, your model in this case has to be, um, you know, Linda Baines Johnson, where you have the bully pulpit and, you know, or, or SDR. And you're going to ram through your program because you're going to take advantage of the advantage that you have. So, yes, I, I you know, I firmly believe that in this moment, um, the Biden administration should be, you know, thinking about this in the context of, um, you know, not worried about the other side and, and, and accommodating the other side, but ensuring that um, the... This will never happen again by punishing those responsible for what happened. And uh, McConnell was so bold. He's in the minority and wanted to, to be talking about power sharing. He's, oh, yeah. he's so bold. He wants to share power when he's, he's in the minority. It's, well, and and that, that'll be one of those things that if, they let, if, if the Biden administration let them get away with that, and that's this is, herein lies the problem. Because if you, to your point, if you play this game and you allow them to, you know, dictate as they're apt to do and want to do and do very effectively what this is going to look like uh, going forward, then, yeah, you're, we're in trouble. And this is what the Republicans have done very effectively um, throughout history, and it's what they did under 
language that that comes from the Democrats is always around um, reconciliation and unity and reaching across the aisle. And this may not be a moment for that. I mean, that's just the reality is that, you know, in January, you know, I'm saying that in the shadow of January 6th. The January 6th is a game changer. And that's a, you, you have to reset at that point. You can't um, say it's business as usual and you can't claim that you are, you know, appealing to some higher authority um, in, in those, you know, under those uh, circumstances or, or moral authority when these people literally tried to lynch democracy. They tried to destroy the very foundations of government. You know, Brian, the other night I was on PBS Extra and I shared with the uh, people in attendance that the closest parallel we have to January 6th in our history is what happened in Little Rock in 1957 when Governor Orfald was sent to the National Guard to keep nine black children from um, integrating Central High. Indeed. And President Eisenhower, the very next day, took those same troops and, and called them into service to the U.S. government and sent them back the very next day to ensure that those students could get into Central High. He gave his speech to the nation that night where he said, Arkansas is embarrassing um, itself in the eyes of the nation, and it's embarrassing the nation in the eyes of the world. And he said, among other things, we fought that war, the civil war, and the South was lost. So, you know, states' rights argument is lost. There's one federal government supreme. If the president doesn't enforce the law, it's anarchy. And, um, you know, the president has to do everything by his means to ensure the function of law, even if he disagrees with the, the rulings of the court. Um, when you think about how Eisenhower behaved in that moment and how Trump behaved on January 6th, it's a study in contrast. But more importantly, Eisenhower was also saying um, in that moment that, he as president couldn't sit idly by and watch what happened in Little Rock and simply be content um, to let that pass in, in the role of the chief executive. Two years later, Thurgood uh, Marshall commented on everything that happened at Central High. Thurgood Marshall said, look, the problem that I have with the way things played out in Arkansas and other places is not with what happens to the black kids. The black students, they understand that he said, and I'm quoting him, They've been struggling with democracy long enough. He said, I worry for the white kids because education, I'm paraphrasing him here, is not the teaching of the three R's. It's not about reading, writing, arithmetic. It's about citizenship. And he said, I don't know of any more horrible destruction of the principle of citizenship than to tell those white people who decided to go home or, or riot rather than go to school with black people, come back, all is forgiven, you win. Because even if you... Um, they ultimately didn't win, and those nine children got to integrate Central High. In allowing them to act out in the way they did, what you did was encourage them to believe that that was right, that it was justifiable, that was acceptable, that there would be no consequences for that behavior. And when we're looking at that in the context of peaceful protests by Black Lives Matter activists this past summer, which was greeted with um, repression and, and police violence, there's no way in the world that we shouldn't expect the same uh, modicum of justice for uh, or for these people as for the injustice that was visiting on those peaceful protesters. I and mean, that, that's the challenge. So remind the listening audience who Thurgood Marshall was. Thurgood Marshall was the chief attorney for the um, NAACP who argued the case of Brown versus Board of Education, which resulted... Um, in the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown, which ordered the immediate desegregation or the desegregation of public schools in the United States with all deliberate speed. Of course, that dictate was not carried out due to the violence and political chicanery we saw in many states across the Union at that time, including the state of Virginia, which closed schools rather than the state of reopened on an integrated basis, including Little Rock, where there was the mob violence to prevent the Little Rock Nine from, from attending school. And Marshall was commenting all, on all that and saying, this is the lesson that you'll communicate to the next generation, that the way they get what they want is the mob is the right. And, and as I watched on January 6th, that's what was percolating in my mind, was the words of Circle Marshall from 1958, and kind of recognizing what he said in that moment. So the Biden administration has an opportunity to right set this by um, you know, literally just making sure they do the right thing and punish these people so the next generation 
generation and looking back on this won't be able to, uh, you know, just kind of walk away and say, well, if we do this, there won't be any consequences. They've got to send the message that um, you don't get to assault what Pelosi calls the temple of democracy and, and walk away from it. And uh, Thurgood Marshall went on to become an, an associate justice in the United States Supreme Court. I, I guess he was the first black man to have gone onto the Supreme Court? He was the first African-American to um, serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. He's educated at Howard University, which is interesting because Kamala Harris also is a Howard graduate. Indeed. Uh, Thurgood Marshall um, studied at Charles Hamilton Houston at, at Howard Law School and was part of the NAACP team that was the architect of a series of cases that ultimately undermined the U.S. Supreme Court's um, precedent established of separate but equal in Plessy versus Ferguson from 1896. So he's a luminary, not just in American um, you know, legal history in terms of having argued that case and gone on to be um, the first African-American Supreme Court justice, but in African-American history, um, he's you know, luminary because his life is a testament to the, the very struggle. You know, when we talk about Thurgood Marshall, for example, let's just kind of put him in the broader context here. He uh, wanted to go to the University you know, of, of Maryland Law School, but back then, you know, they, they forced African-Americans, you know, the, the state of Maryland had a law that if you were black, you couldn't go to law school in Maryland, but you could go anywhere else in, you know, in the country, and they pay for it. And Marshall eventually took the case of a young man named Donald Murray in a case called Murray versus Maryland, and he argued that that was inherently unequal, because what Maryland was doing by virtue of that law, although some people were like, oh, that's a, that's a good deal. They'll pay for you to go anywhere else. But Marshall said, look, the problem there is that if they go anywhere else, at the end of the day, if they want to practice law in Maryland, they have to be able to pass the Maryland bar. Indeed. So by forcing them to go elsewhere, there was no way they would have access to the same law library, the same resources, the same contacts. Even if they were ultimately successful in passing the bar, they'd be entering a profession in the state where they had no professional contact, um, contact no bonus CD, so on and so forth. So Marshall recognized that, along with Charles Hamilton Houston and that team of attorneys, and he was a brilliant legal mind, and, you know, he was able to bring that to the court. So, you know, but, but back to this conversation about democracy and how January 6th impacts this, that's what um, those people at Little Rock were attempting to do in denying those African-American students access to schools to prevent them from getting an education. In the same way, as I think about January 6th and the shadow of January 6th, what were those people saying? You stole our election. We don't want Raphael Warnock from uh, sitting in a Senate seat in Georgia. We don't want Joe Biden, an uh, African-American vice president. We want, you know, Mike Pence and Donald Trump. And, and that's why so many people are making the case that this in and of itself um, is very much tied to white but do you think they wanted Mike Pence? They were saying, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. So I'm not quite sure that they wanted him. Um, I think they really wanted him, but they definitely, you know, it's interesting because you're right. Um, I, they were saying hang Mike Pence because they believed that Mike Pence was going to go along with the evidence. They were calling him a traitor. Yes. And that's even more dangerous if they're, you know, the, the, the other piece of this that we haven't talked about is Trump's demagoguery. Indeed. At the end of the day, this is bigger than, you know, even... The, the betrayal of the Republican Party, this is people's alliance and, and uh, faith in, in a would-be dictator. And that's terrifying in the United States. Indeed. Uh, you're in touch with uh, WPKN Radio. The show is What's Your Point? I am speaking with the Distinguished University Chair, Professor of History, and Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Dr. Yohoro Williams. I am Garnet Ankle. And uh, at the time, I think it was the day after, possibly the same day, January 6th, uh, the president-elect at the time, Joe Biden, came out and said, if it was Black Lives Black Lives Matter group who went up there just to protest, they would have possibly been manhandled. But these people were treated with kid gloves, uh, these white people, because of their race. Uh, are you in agreement with that statement? I think they would have been executed. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm obviously overstating the case here, but by that I mean people would have been calling for them to be thrown underneath the jail or, you know, publicly hanged um, or disciplined to the most, the, the severest extent of the law. 
many people talked about Black Lives Matter activists. We're still having, in many states, laws coming on the books preventing the picketing of um, the homes of elected officials. Um, and, and, you know, all of these efforts to ensure that if their protest breaks out again, they can arrest peaceful protesters and harass peaceful protesters. And yet we literally watch, um, you know, protesters hugging and taking pictures with White House police officers. <laughs> And Biden was absolutely right to say what he said in the aftermath of that because it's true. If the perpetrators of that assault on the Capitol had been non-white, we would be having a very different conversation right now. So that, that's another what you call white privilege. So, yes. so the, the racist president was somewhere in the White House watching it and was gleeful while watching, and um, his own Republican. Um, Congress people were calling him and he was so gleeful was, was enjoying what was taking place an insurrection, an attempted coup and what, what do you make of anybody who behaves like that, especially the president of a country? Well, I, I think it's fair to say he was never fit for office to begin with and so, and that was the argument that was made consistently uh, uh, about you know, him and his fitness for office, his fitness for duty. And watching his reaction in the aftermath of the, you know, because he encouraged that. I mean, we're also thinking about the speech that he gave, that Rudy Giuliani gave, that, that um, uh, uh, you know, his lieutenant gave on that day. He was gleeful because, you know, he got what he wanted, and he thought that they actually were going to do his bidding in, um, you know, disrupting Congress and, and uh, forestalling the vote. And uh, his vice president was pinned down along with his wife and child, and he didn't call him to find out what is going on. It took nearly a week before they spoke. That is what, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It is. He's a demagogue. I mean, this is, you know, people who don't believe that he should be impeached are missing the point because the, the, the problem here is that uh, he has the chance to run for office again. There, there are presidents in our history of people who serve two non-consecutive terms as president. And, you know, you want to make sure this this human being can get nowhere near the executive office of the president again. Indeed. So what do you think is, is the future of the Republican Party, the grand old party, the party of Lincoln? We have now become a, a racist group in general. That's how I'm seeing it. What are your thoughts? Well, fortunately, historically, um, the allegiances of the party split and have changed and evolved. So it's not really the, the same party of Lincoln. It's the Republican Party, but it's not the same DNA. Um, but to your larger point, the Republican Party has been through um, a couple of these moments in the past. We saw this with the Tea Party and kind of been in a position to reinvent itself. So the question now is what will our reinvention look like? I thought, for sure, the Tea Party was the death of the Republican Party, and yet what it did was open up the door for extremism in the Republican Party, where you get um, a candidate like Donald Trump, who, you know, quite frankly, on the campaign trail, demonstrated his unfitness for office, and people still voted for him in record numbers. So, um, you know, I think the party will survive. Um, what will, because you know, um, I, I'm not sure that the people who supported the base recognize the mortal danger that leaders like Hawley and Cruz and Trump put the nation in by virtue of their ignorance and, and their actions. And that's sad. I mean, that, that's a failure of democracy, but it's also a question of education. And then you have QAnon member or members in the House of Representatives and, you know, it's 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 it seems as if we're living in some dreadful times. We have people who support some serious conspiracies are in the House of Representatives making laws. Right, right. And and this is again part of the part of the challenge here is that you know QAnon in and of itself is um, terrifying when you think about the conspiracy theories and the. Um, the appeal to violence and the white supremacy, so on and so forth. But the, the real issue here, uh, Garnett, too, is the death of statecraft because, you know, where are the state people? 
who, in spite of their personal beliefs or whatever it may be, put the country first. You, you have all of these Republicans who appeal to um, this sense of uh, patriotism and, and try to make the case that, you know, they're good moral people, and yet they let, you know, watch what happened and were willing to kind of try to distance themselves from it. Um, and so, you know, and, and that's one strain. And QAnon is that on steroids where you actually have, we, we can we could spend all day talking about some of the crazy conspiracies they touted online and some of the real damage that's caused in real life when people believe that, including January 6th. When people believe that foolishness and, and you don't have any independent check on, on this flow of, of uh, tainted information. Patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Uh, let's uh, shift gears a bit and let's talk a little about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And of course, he was born the the 15th of January, 1929. What do you think of, what is his legacy? What is what is the legacy of King? Well, you know, I, I think in the shadow of, of January 6th, some people are looking at it a little bit differently this year, and I'll tell you why. The legacy of Dr. King has been reduced to a soundbite um, from the March on Washington and his speech about his dream. And no one ever talks about Dr. King's vision. Uh, the life work of an individual who published multiple books, wrote you know, many, many articles, gave many, many speeches, was very vocal about his vision for civil rights, has been reduced to a dream that um, tokenizes and turns Dr. King into uh, what Vincent Harding called a kind of a Santa classification of Dr. King. He becomes, you know, this kind of impotent, um, minister who begged all of us to see our shared humanity and not this fierce um, advocate for civil rights who was willing to uh, die uh, for, for the cause and die uh, and be martyred because he believed so fundamentally in not just civil rights for um, African Americans but true economic justice. That's the radical king. In the aftermath of January 6th, the reason why I say we have to rethink that legacy is twofold. Number one, People forgot that we all had to march and fight to get the King holiday accrued. Um, this is not something that uh, every state embraced. In fact, some states, in, in order to, to do so, um, you know, some states refused to sign on. Some states decided to try to honor King with Confederate war heroes. Um, it was a it was a battle fraught with um, dissension and controversy, and yet. A few years ago, Glenn Beck, the conservative talk show host, former Fox News talk show host, was quoted as saying that Republicans were going to and try to take back Dr. King and the civil rights movement because they've been so corrupted. And I don't know if you noticed, Garnett, but this year at the convention, the Republican Party carted out um, a few civil rights icons as, as paragons of how the Republican Party was right on the issue of civil rights. Well, this is the problem, is that when you turn a man and a movement into a caricature, you create the opportunity in the state for people to treat them in the same way that Barack Obama talked about how people treating him like a blue screen upon which you can project all your fantasies about what that person represents. There's no need for any of us to have to doubt or imagine what Dr. King stood for. He told us in books like Why We Can't Wait. He told us in books like Strength of Love, he told us in his final book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos and Community, that he was talking about dismantling systemic racism. He was talking about the need for a radical redistribution of wealth in the country. That he was talking about the responsibility of the federal government to intervene to ensure absolute equality before the law for African Americans. So, you know, I, when you ask what his legacy is, for me, his legacy is that black radical tradition in this uh, unapologetic appeal for justice. Um, that vision of King often is at odds with the meme culture we live in now, where he's reduced to um, a few sentences from either the Birmingham, from Birmingham jail or the March on Washington, which were written for very specific purposes and do not capture uh, the full essence of who Dr. King was as an activist or as a man. So the Republicans, the senators, and the and the the 
Congress people in the United States Congress were latching onto Dr. King's speech and to Dr. King recently talking about, oh, Dr. King was a great man. And and this is just hypocrisy because they're not living what Dr. King ta taught us. They're not doing anything where Dr. King is concerned. And were Dr. King alive today, they're the same ones who will be criticizing him because he will be talking against their racist rhetoric and their racist behaviors. Your, your thoughts? I couldn't agree more, and I think that's, again, when you reduce them to a soundbite, anybody can, you know, raise up those those quotes and claim that they support that. But the question is, what did you do all year? Where were you when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis? Where did you stand on uh, the investigation into Breonna Taylor's killing in Kentucky? These are issues. Dr. King would have been in the front lines. In fact, two of Dr. King's lieutenants died last year. Vivian and John Lewis. Indeed. Um, and both of those individuals remained on the front lines of the battle for social justice, racial justice in the United States. John Lewis's final letter to the American people, which is uh, published in the New York Times the day after his death, all is, is written to Black Lives Matter activists telling them that uh, to keep doing what they were doing and only they could redeem the soul of America. Powerful. And, so, and they... Sitting in the United States Senate, there's a bill sitting there from the last Congress. They claim they love King so much, and Lewis was one of King's lieutenants or lieutenants, and they let that bill die. And then they're coming talking about how great King was. They were a set of jokers. That's it. They are. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it any more eloquent uh, than you, Cornette. That is exactly what they are. It is a dream. That dream is just partly remains a dream, or what, what is it? What do we do? What, where do we go from here as a people? Right, that was just that was King's final book, and he, I think, was struggling with that, but also laid out a blueprint. My favorite piece by Dr. King is actually published the year after his death in 1969, and it's a really powerful article where Dr. King talked about um, the, the road ahead. He, I just wrote a piece on this in the Progressive um, uh, magazine, um, or for, uh, uh, campaign where was it Memphis Tennessee you went to uh, to deal with some sanitation workers in that fateful April 68 when he was assassinated was he dealing with and talking on behalf of sanitation workers was that how he yeah, yeah okay without economic justice or dead rights. 
were good enough to have a job as a sanitation worker, but then be forced to work under conditions which ultimately deprive you of your ability to take care of your family and have a decent you know, quality of life or to be in jeopardy um, of, of uh, being injured as many of those uh, sanitation workers were without the benefit of benefits. Uh, so, yeah, King, King was ahead of his time in a lot of ways and, and de- declawing him in a way that it's become fashionable to do since the designation of the King holiday is something that always disturbs me because the historical king was far more radical and far more complex and complicated than anything you hear some of the people who invoked his name on, you know, portrays who Dr. King was. Indeed, and, uh, you know, the the late John McCain, uh, when it was time for him to vote for the King holiday, he he voted no. You recall that? And he said um, so many so many presidents and so forth came before. Why can't, why should give a holiday to him? He later apologized, though, for that because maybe he didn't understand the magnitude of the man, but he was around. Your right. thoughts? Absolutely true. And, and, and I, I think it was in some disrespectful, um, but, but not unexpected, that they would do that in the shadow of Jay. That's what disturbed me the most is that, you know, Dr. King marched on Washington peacefully in 1963. And, you know, these people stormed the Capitol and many of their leaders had the the gall to quote Dr. King. That's very disturbing. Very disturbing, Um, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. So thanks again, uh, Professor. It, thanks for doing this uh, on, on short notice. And uh, we will talk. Thanks again. You too. Thanks. The preceding was a conversation with the distinguished university chair, founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative and a professor of history at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Dr. Yohoro Williams. We discussed the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the the attempted coup at the United States Capitol on January 6, did say we'd have some time to at least take a call, but I'll use this time to uh, inform you of some serious situation here. A report published almost two weeks ago by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, a nonprofit watchdog group, showed how corporate money continued to support most of the 147 members of the United States Congress who voted to overturn the election results. In the last year, 717 companies and industry groups gave more than $18 million to 143 of those members of Congress who voted to overturn the fair election. Businesses that pledge to stop or pause their donations to those members of Congress have since given nearly $2.4 million directly to their campaigns or leadership political action committee, Boeing, Pfizer, General Motors, Ford Motor, AT&T, UPS, and the Chamber of Commerce are some organizations that have resumed or have continued giving money to the Republicans uh, in the United States Congress. And um, you, some of the these organizations said they're giving money donation uh, in um, the spirit of uh, partisanship. Uh, we've got to go talk to you uh, next time we're on, on Saturday at 10 p.m. You do take care.
This is FC Buzz on WPKN Radio. A brief look at what's happening around Fairfield County. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our weekly selection from FC Buzz Events, the best guide to arts and culture in coastal Fairfield County. Find it at culturalalliancefc.org. Sunday, 7.45 at FTC Stage 1, Morgan James. Called the most promising young vocalist to come along so far this century by the Wall Street Journal, presents her a very magnetic post-Christmas show. The singer has also been described as having it all. Soul, charm, chops, blue-chip musicianship, and the kind of absolute individuality that makes a singing as recognizable as a fingerprint. Monday, 1.30 p.m., Connect Us presents Bridgeport Has a Dream at the Klein Auditorium in Bridgeport. The special MLK Day performance, organized by the young people of Bridgeport, celebrates Dr. King in the very location where he spoke in 1961 and 1964 and where he was honored in a memorial service four days after his 1968 assassination. Monday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., Norwalk's Mad Lab is offering a free demo day for their upcoming Mad Kids art workshop series. Mad Kids is an eight-week art program open to children ages 5 through 11 and designed to inspire creative exploration. Meet instructor Laurie Bloom and team, ask questions, and make art together. Tuesday, 6 to 8 at Bridgeport's Klein Auditorium, Masterclass with Paul Bogayev. Song performance and vocal technique. Are you a student who is curious about the behind-the-scenes world of TV, film and Broadway? Klein Theatre Arts is offering 10 free Masterclass workshops taught by award-winning professionals in the arts. The third class in the series will be taught on Tuesday by Paul Bogayev, a Grammy and Emmy award-winning music director, producer and arranger in person and live stream options are available. Beginning Tuesday, 4.15 to 8 p.m. and running through March 21st, Curtain Calls Winter 2022 Dramatic Arts Classes in Acting for the Stage, TV and Film, Acting, Music Theatre, Improv and Comedy, Broadway Tap and more will be up and running for grades K through 12 and adults. These classes help provide not only a strong foundation in performance skills, but also self-confidence, presentation and speaking skills, social skills, and teamwork. Tuesday at noon at FTC Fairfield, Play With Your Food is back and ready to play as it opens its new season of lunchtime theater readings. With all new irresistible plays, delicious boxed lunches from popular local restaurants, and great talkbacks with its professional cast of actors. Play With Your Food promises a delightful one and a half hours of top-notch theatre right in your own backyard. For details on these and hundreds more events, check FC Buzz Events at culturalalliancefc.org. This was FC Buzz on WPKN Radio. Climate change is a public health emergency. That's the name of a panel to be presented on Zoom by the Connecticut Climate Crisis Mobilization on Sunday, January 16th from 4 to 6 p.m. Panelists will discuss the links between public health and climate change, the disparate impacts on marginalized communities, climate solutions that are working in Connecticut, and actions you can take in your local community. CTClimateCrisisMobilization.org slash events to register. The forum will offer simultaneous interpretation in Spanish. Hello, I'm Ed Hamill, a.k.a. Hamill on Trial, and this is WPKN Bridgeport at 89.5 FN and online at WPKN.org.